0: So this afternoon we return to the close application of mindfulness to the mind, so clearly a Vipassana practice. And the parallel, once again, is very, very strong with Tibetan mes- medicine practice by a real master. And that is if the patient is very frail or has some very serious illnesses that deplete the energy and all of that, then the system, the, the, the person's body, the whole system, will not be able to probably assimilate or benefit from really strong medicine. It, it just won't, it won't be able to take the impact. So therefore, very gentle medicines are given that don't have that, that deep a impact, not really powerful medicines, but they make a little bit of help. And then gradually they nourish the system, they strengthen the system, a bit more balance, and then you give a stronger medicine. This is why a traditional Tibetan doctor like the one I lived with for quite a long time uh, meets with his patients once every week. And each time, brand new, fresh diagnosis, looking at the urine, the pulse, questioning, and so forth. And then week by week, then if the the healing process is going well, then you'll see one medicine change. There are usually three medicines. One medicine change, and then another one will change, gradually giving stronger and stronger medicines until eventually, hopefully, a a complete cure is brought about. It's very similar here. And that is, we start just learning how to breathe. That's not going to purify or eradicate any mental affliction to its root. But learning how to breathe, learning how to settle body, speech, and mind in a natural state is anything but trivial. And a lot of you, I think, have now experienced that in eight weeks, really learn, oh, this is what it's like. This is what it's like to breathe. This is what it's like to have the body, the mind at rest, and so forth with clarity. And then this whole domain of shamatha. Of course, everybody knows it, 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 no matter how good you are at it, you become you know, the world expert. Uh, it won't eradicate a single mental affliction, not even one. But it does make some pretty formidable obscurations go dormant, so is almost like as if they're hibernating, in which case then you can bring in a much stronger medicine. And of course, that's Vipassana. And if, that, if that's working, if that does its work, and it's really more attenuating the mental afflictions, getting to a pretty deep level, then you just keep moving right on. And then you can bring in, for example, one route, very developmental, the stage of generation and completion. Very, very powerful. Or go another route, or you can do both, complementary, and that is going right into Dzogchen or Mahamudra, as we've seen. And this goes right down to the core, the ultimate ground of awareness, and the deepest medicine there is. And so this Vipassana really is intended, as we see in so many texts, shantideva makes it clear in both of his great treatises that this Vipassana, the, t- the cultivation of the perfection of wisdom, is really intended for those who have already made their mind serviceable. So it's not at all to imply. He doesn't imply. And I've never heard a teacher say, don't start it until after you've achieved shamatha. Way too strict. Never heard one teacher. I've heard have a lot of teachings over 42 years. Not one has said, oh no, don't touch it until you've achieved shamatha. At the same time, all the classic teachings say, but the time when you can really fully benefit from it. And then, of course, what's the whole point of Vipassana methodologically is to have that total fusion the union of shamatha and vipassana. So, we saw earlier from Gyatranabhach's commentary to the Mahamudra teachings on small stage of yoga of single pointedness. The first one is getting that shamatha right in the nature of awareness, and then immediately apply it to vipassana, and above all, vipassana right to the nature of the mind. And that's where we're going now. So, it's good to sow seeds. As I mentioned, I think it was Yochan asking about receiving Vajrayana empowerment. That's, that's beyond vipassana, that's beyond cultivation of bodhicitta. But according to, really to all my teachers, with no exceptions within the Tibetan tradition, all of them say, go ahead and sow the seeds. When you feel you're ripe, you'd like to, the faith is there, go ahead and sow the seeds. And then as you are then doing the, the groundwork, that's the only problem, is if you don't do the groundwork and you keep on doing the facsimiles, you can do those indefinitely, they'll never do the work they were designed to do, and you're not laying the groundwork. Then, then you have a lot of good mental imprints. That's about it, which is certainly something. But when you consider there really is a path here right within arm's reach then why not go for it? So we turn now to the Shiksha Samochaya, the compendium of, pla- uh, of practices by Shantideva. We've covered the close application of mindfulness to the feelings. We turn now to his presentation and of course he's really primarily just citing sutras one after another. Uh, this one's quite formidable. It's the close application of mindfulness to the mind is isca- discussed in the Ratnachuda Sutra. So here's now the Buddha speaking. Consider this: while thoroughly experiencing the mind. Okay. And by the way, I'm going to try to stop very close to five o'clock because we the, the mail is piling up, and I want to make sure that I get a re, I have time to respond to a question to Birgit, our dear Dharma sister needs to leave tomorrow for the best of all possible reasons to take care of someone a loved one who is ailing. So we will wish you all well, safe journeys, and f- complete recovery, for this very dear Dharma brother. Uh, so, there's a question for her. I want to make sure I address it before she needs to take off. So, to the Ratnachuta Sutra, consider this while thoroughly experiencing the mind. Just stop right there, you know me. Can't get through the whole thing. <laughs> thoroughly experiencing the mind. How would you go about doing that? Gee, maybe settling the mind would be a good way. There you are, just attending to whatever comes up the space of the mind, subjective impulses, objective appearances. That's pretty thorough. When you get very accustomed to it, you see, okay, like a a plantation owner standing up on a hill and looking out over his whole plantation. Okay, that's all of it. I've seen it. And he'll say, that's my plantation. Now, what he's not saying is, you mean that tree, or do you mean that piece of dirt, or you mean that rock, you mean the borders? He's not doing ontological analysis, right? He's not saying, oh, shucks, I I I thought I had a plantation, but I guess I don't after all. Why did I spend so much money on it? So there is this phase where you're looking out over the plantation and you say, where's your plantation? It's right over there. You can see there's the borders. That's my plantation. And you leave it right there. In Tibetan it's called mata machet. Mata machet. Don't investigate. Don't analyze. Just You've just said something true. That's my plantation. That's my neighbor's plantation. And there's my other neighbor's plantations. And that's my plantation. True. Leave it right there. Within this cognitive frame of reference, that's enough. And you should know where the borders are, good borders, good fences, and all of that, making good neighbors, and so forth. And likewise with the mind. In the Galupa tradition, they call this settling the mind in its natural state, semle mipishine. Shine, shamata, focus on the mind. So when we're doing this, we're not saying, well, okay, which one's the mind? Which one's the mind? We're just saying, no, I'm looking at the space of the mind, whatever, and that is as good as it gets for observing the mind. That's what we call observing the mind. I'm looking over at Kasia. I'm looking at her face. And so i yes, I am, there's Kasia's face. But I said, well, okay, which, which part of the face is her face? Her nose, her mouth, her hair, and so forth? No, we're not doing that. So just, matak yet. there she is, and then we leave it there. Then if you want to probe into, okay, does it exist from its own side, then you bring in the Vipassana. So it's very important to see there is this phase which has it legitim- its legitimacy, its truth. It's conventional truth, a relative truth, but it is a truth. And it's never negated. This is the actual point, really crucial point. It's never negated by the ultimate analysis. Direct realization of emptiness doesn't say, wow, was I ever wrong before when I thought that's Cassia right over there. She's still right over there. Even after you realize em- emptiness, there are still sentient beings and they're still suffering. And as, as far as they're concerned, they're caught, caught up in what an awakened person would call a non-lucid dream. And for th- for them, they're calling reality. Because that's as good as it gets. So, when thoroughly experiencing the mind, well, you can see just the perfect platform, the shamatha platform is settling the mind in its natural state and maybe bringing in a bit of awareness of awareness. So now we continue. While thoroughly experiencing the mind, what are those minds that become attached or hateful or deluded? So here it is, we'll often say that, you know, I'm just tormented by my mind or I'm i'm anxious uh, the mind is fitful the mind doesn't I mean, my mind is restless and so forth and so the mind because also becomes dominated by these these three root poisons but then he says what are those minds so now we're going into this ontological analysis which we're probing in do they arise in the past future or present now clearly this really has a power to it a power to transform, a power to deconstruct your experience of your own mind. If and only if you actually apply this to your own experience of your own mind, and they don't just think about somebody else's mind and then write an article or win a debate. Okay. So these minds, and we all know that sometimes the mind is full of craving, attachment, and so forth. Unti- other times malevolent, hostile, aggressive, hateful. Other times dopey, deluded, stupid, and so forth. So do they arise in the past, present, past, future, or present? Any mind that is past has vanished. So it can't be that. Vanished means not there anymore. Whatever is in the future has not come. You don't have to worry about that. And whatever rises in the present doesn't, does not last. So when your mind does become dominated by any of the mental afflictions, probe right into it in that way, posing these kind of questions. See if you can find that mind that by its own nature really is attached, hostile, delusional. See if you can find it. Kashapa, the mind is not, to be found, is not found to be present inside, So inside your body, for example, or outside, or both inside and outside. Nowhere to be found in space. Kashapa, the mind is formless, undemonstrable, which means you can't point to it. You can say, oh, you can't do that. You can't say, oh, there it is. The mind is formless, undemonstrable, intangible, devoid of a basis. So this whole, this is why sometimes I get such, how do you say, passion arising when I hear these heavy, heavy terms like these are the underlying neural mechanisms of the mind, as if they found really the basis of the mind. And all they found is the correlates. So I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what he's saying here. It has no basis. Correlations to neural activity, of course. I mean, Buddhists, the Buddhist literature doesn't talk about neural correlates, but it certainly speaks about very strong correlations with your pranic system for as long as you're embodied. for Whatever subjective experience is taking place in the mind, there was always a correlated state of energy or energetic process in the body. That's classic Buddhism. So the whole notion of mind-body correlation is very specific and detailed right down to the what, whatever type of experience you have. Realizing Rikpa, there's something taking place in the body, right? The prana going into the bindu at the heart. Experiencing anger, malice, compassion, realization of emptiness. No matter what it is, from the grossest to the most sublime, as long as we're embodied, there is something taking place. One would say in modern medicine, there's a neurocorrelate. correlate. Something's happening in the body that's correlated to that, In first-person physiology, we speak about the movements of prana. But to say that there's a correlation doesn't mean that one is really the ontological basis for the other, and that's what he's critiquing here. It's devoid of a basis. It's invisible, unknowable, in terms of really finding it, and without any location, not inside the head, the heart chakra. It's nowhere to be found. Kashyapa, here's a powerful statement coming. Kashyapa, the mind has never, has the mind has never even been seen, is not seen, and will and will never be seen by any of the Buddhas. As something existing in and of itself, really observed, apart from phenomena that arise from mistaken identification, how can one know the kind of process of any of anything that has never even been seen? is not seen and will never be seen by any of the Buddhas. Kashapa, the mind is like an illusion, for it apprehends many kinds of events by way of unreal conceptual projections. Unreal means they're not really there from their own side. Kashapa, the mind is like the current of a stream, for it does not remain but arises, passes away, and vanishes. Kashapa, the mind is like the wind, for it goes on for a long time and moves without being able to hold it. of the mind is like the radiant light of a lamp, for it arises independent upon causes and conditions. of the mind is like the sky, for it is temporarily obscured by mental afflictions and derivative mental afflictions. Kashyapa, the mind is like lightning for it instantly vanishes and does not linger. Kashyapa, because the mind produces all suffering it is like an enemy. Kashyapa, because the mind destroys all the roots of virtue it is like a sandcastle. Kashyapa, because the mind mistakes suffering for happiness it's like a fishhook it looks attractive, and then you get it, don't like it so much. Kashyapa, because the mind mistakes the identityless for an identity. It is like a dream. Kashyapa, because the mind mistakes the impure for the pure. It is like a blue bottle fly. Those are the ones that land on nasty stuff. Kashyapa, because the mind inflicts many kinds of injuries. It is like an adversary. Kashyapa, because the mind always looks for faults, it is like a predatory goblin. Kashyapa, because the mind always looks for its chance, it is like an enemy. Kashyapa, because the mind is imbued with attachment and hostility, it always vacillates. Kashyapa, because the mind robs all the roots of virtue, it is like a thief. Kashapa, because the mind is attracted to forms, it is like the eye of a fly. Kashapa, because the mind is attracted to sounds, it is like a battle drum. Kashapa, the mind is attracted to smells, like a pig that likes disgusting odors. Kashapa, the mind is attracted to tastes, like a maid who eats leftovers. Kashyapa, the mind is attracted to tactile sensations, like a fly stuck in a dish of oil. Kashyapa, even though one looks for the mind everywhere, it is not to be found. Whatever is not not to be found, that is to say, it is unfindable. Whatever is unfindable is unobservable. Whatever is unobservable does not arise in the past or in the future or in the present. Whatever does not arise in the past or in the future or in the present really transcends the three times. Whatever really transcends the three times is neither existent nor non-existent. quite interesting there, in this analysis of the mind that we do experience, but probing into its actual nature. One finds that it's unfindable, unobservable, does not arise in the the past, the future, or in the present. That's exactly true of awareness, of rikpa, pristine awareness. Unfindable. There's no way, that is, nothing can ever observe rikpa, other than rikpa. And Rikpa doesn't observe Rikpa. Rikpa doesn't find Rikpa any more than the tip of my finger finds itself. The only way that Rikpa is ever found, ever known, ever realized is through a non dual awareness of itself. But no other mind, not the substrate consciousness, not coarse mind, no other mind can possibly make contact with or find or observe Rikpa. It's invisible, invisible, too close to be seen hidden in plain sight, so to speak. So it's quite interesting here that these statements he's making about the mind then actually directly pertain to the ultimate dimension of mind. This rikpa, pristine awareness, does not arise in the past or in the future or in the present. It's beyond the three times, and that's what he says. Whatever does not arise in the past or in the future or in the present really transcends the three times. That's exactly it. Rikpa is in the fourth time. Transcending the three times. And then finally, whatever really transcends the three times is neither existent nor non existent. That's one of the crucial features of Rikpa. It's an interesting point, and I'll, and I'll end there, especially before Birgit leaves. And that is classic Dzogchen literature it says of Rikpa that it transcends all conceptual elaborations, prapancha, or dupa, It's free of, divorced from all, all conceptual extremes, all polarities, all polarities, such as, and the first one is, it's, it neither arises nor does it perish. As for starters. And then it neither exists nor doesn't exist. In other, words, it's, it's, in other words, there's no invitation at all. If you can't even go that far, okay, among existence, and, and then what kind? Well, you can't. It won't even let you in the door of conceptual elaborations, because that's pretty basic. Okay, is it there or not? Does it exist or not? Let's get that one straight. And that one's the answer is sorry, that question does not compute. So we're even, even almost like duck a water off a duck's back. Even that question can't get in. Okay, and then it's. It's neither one nor many. So, so, so the rikpa of Maitreya and the rikpa of Buddha Shakyamuni, are they the same or are they different? Tracy's rikpa and Tanya's rikpa, are they the same or you each ha- have your own? Does not compute. Neither the same nor different. Don't go to either one. So even the notion, oh, it's all one, which is very appealing and and, and it reflects. It's a natural articulation of many very deep and authentic experiences. This is deeper than that because you can't even say it's all one versus all two. It doesn't lend itself to numerical categorization. And then finally, no going, no coming. It's free of going or coming. Transcends that. So why I wanted to raise this, and this will be the last point. We go to meditation is the question with my Galupa training, which I I cherish. question arose in my mind a long time ago. Madhyamaka, a central Madhyamaka theme, Prasangika Madhyamaka, pinnacle of Buddhist philosophy, by wide, not universal, but by wide consensus in Tibetan Buddhism, that all phenomena, conditioned phenomena, unconditioned phenomena, have no inherent nature of their own, they arise independent upon conceptual designation. In other words, there's nothing there, subjectively, objectively, or anywhere else, that already exists independently of any conceptual designation whatsoever. There's nothing. And they'll they'll say, from the the most minute elementary particle, this is straight out of the classic literature, they call it an atom, call it a quark, whatever you like, but the most minute particle of matter, up to the mind of a Buddha, So that's a pretty big bandwidth. I think they tried to cover everything there in that bandwidth. And they say this. From the most minute, minute particle of matter up to the omniscient mind of a Buddha, there is nothing there that exists by its own inherent nature. It's all empty of inherent nature. So how do these phenomena arise? Independence upon conceptual designation. In other words, they can be said to exist only relative to a cognitive frame of reference. And that cognitive frame of reference is is activated by conceptualization. By this is this, that's that. Okay, That activation of the observer participant. Right? But you cannot speak of anything having any existence whatsoever independent of a, this cognitive frame of reference or conceptual designation. Right? That's the statement. Now, true or false, but that is the statement. So then the question arises. With my 20 years of Galupa background and then having then roughly 20 years of Dzogchen background on top of that, but one of the questions came on early is, what about Rikpa? Comes the Gulupa to debate with my Dzogchen master. What about Rikpa? Does Rikpa depend upon conceptual designation? For Rikpa to be there, for Rikpa to be present, does it arise independence upon conceptual designation? well, that just makes no sense at all. Zero. It's absolutely, by nature, non-conceptual, transcending conceptualization. To, so, to say that its existence depends upon conceptual designation really just doesn't make any sense. Right? And then we say, aha, you mean it exists independently of conceptual designation. Which means, therefore, the Dzogchen teachings must be incompatible with Prasanga madhyamaka Therefore, Padmasambhava and Tsongkhava have a real problem with each other. So which is it? Does it exist inherently by its own nature independently of conceptual designation in which case you're refuting Nagarjuna let alone Shantikirti and Shantideva and Sonkom and so forth or does it arise independent upon conceptual designation in which case you've just refuted Dzogchen? So which one? And apart from miles who knows the way out of that conundrum? How do you get out of that? You know, don't you? I think you do. You will gravely disappoint me. I'm gonna to have to have to shave the other side of your head if you don't know. <laughs> punishment. <laughs> Nicola, what's the way what's the way out? Which what's the way out here? Because his Holin's Dalai Lama and many, many uh Jujum Lingba, his teachings and emptiness are completely in accordance with Prasangika Madhyamaka. I will say that. And that here he is, one of the greatest ocean masters of I think of any time, but certainly of the nineteenth century. So the teachings on Dzogchen, are they incompatible? The the Dzogchen teachings on Rikpa, are they incompatible with Prasanga Kamatyamaka? Because they're saying Rikpa does exist independently of conceptual designation, which means it's inherently existent, and therefore Nagarjuna is wrong. Or are are the Dzogchen teachings of Rikpa internally inconsistent, because the Dzogchen teachings say it's completely beyond conceptualization. So what's the way out? That seems like if it, if, if it doesn't depend upon a conceptual network, I think that does mean that it doesn't. It exists without dependence on the conceptual ne- network. If it doesn't depend, that means it doesn't depend, which means it's independent. I don't see any way out of that conundrum. Somebody else wanted to you, can keep on, conti- continue thinking. Who can help me out here? Because I, I really, I want, I cling, I'm attached to following Dzogchen and. I'm not willing to abandon Tsongkhva or Nagarjuna or the perfection of wisdom Sutras. Mark, Mike, Mike, Mike. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's just, and, and I did give it away, but he was the one that picked that up. Yeah, and probably other people did as well. Mike said, the way out of this is just to take seriously and literally what the Dzogchen teachings said about rikpa in the first place. It does not fall into either category of existent or non-existent, Therefore, to ask, in what manner is it existent? Dependent upon conceptual designation or independent of conceptual designation, what part of the earlier statement didn't you understand? right? And and Mike got that right. Exactly. That you're working, when you're asking that question, in what manner does rikpa exist? Dependent upon conceptual designation or independent of conceptual designation, there's a built-in assumption, and that is it does exist, which means you've already planted it within a conceptual framework in which the word exist means something. But who defines the meaning of the word exist? Conceptual minds. The word exist does not define itself. This is really important. It kind of seems like it does. Like it's either really there or not, but not so simple. Look at different philosophical traditions east and west throughout the ages. Look at modern psychology, modern philosophy of mind. Look at physics. Look at physics. Does a tachyon exist? A tachyon is a particle that travels only faster than the speed of light. Does it exist? Does, black, does dark matter exist? If it exists, then you know why can't you measure it? And so forth. And so the only point here is uh, it's no criticism of any of these systems, but it is to say, that none of the terms we use define themselves. And that includes the fundamental demarcation between to be and not to be, to exist and not exist. Even those those two categories don't define themselves. They haven't already defined themselves, so we simply come and discover them. But rather, the very categories of existence and non-existence are ones, they're categories conceived by the conceptual mind, and moreover, different conceptual minds conceive of them in different ways. And that's the way it is. So, that being the case, rikpa does not fall into any conceptual category conceived by any conceptual mind. It transcends them all. Then one might wonder, well, then why talk about it at all? If it transcends all words and all concepts, which is a a statement that you just find hundreds of times in Dzogchen literature, it transcends all speech and all conceptualization, then why do people keep on talking about and conceiving about and writing about rikpa so extensively when... What part of transcending <laughs> words and concepts don't you understand? And I think you know the answer to that, too. Steph, what's the answer? I think you do. You're just not coming to mind. Yeah. Why use words? If, if not to describe something, if the words are not, no good for describing the nature of rikpa, then what... Then, but these are really wise people. These are not fools. that just, you know, they forgot. You know. So what other use might words be for in using words? Relating to Rikpa. Quite quite. A best not a best approximation, not quite, no. A little bit different angle. Elizabeth? Pointing. Say again? Pointing, right? Yeah, exactly that, pointing. The The philosophical term is instrumental. Instrumental. The words are a tool, so the finger pointing to the moon. The No matter how, how large a, a, a tome you write, like the, the seven treasures of long Jemba, some of the, really, some perhaps one could say the greatest classics in the whole tradition of Dzogchen. Uh, Tremendous mind, tremendous insight, and tremendously large. This is a large body of literature. But no matter how many words are there, none of them capture it. But all from every single sentence is designed like medicine, to point you there, to get you there, as an instrument to move you towards that realization yourself. It's instrumental. It's 501. I'm going to try to keep my promise. Let's go into meditation. Before Invent- venturing into these deep investigations, we take the gentle and soothing medicine, of settling the body, speech, and mind in the natural states, and gently calming the turbulence of the conceptual mind, quieting the flow of rumination. let your eyes be partially open at least, very relaxed, soft, blinking whenever you feel like it. But let your gaze be vacant. Don't latch onto any visual form, any object. But as if you are daydreaming, let your gaze be vacant. And in this initial practice of taking the impure mind as the path, taking our own mind, the mind with which we're very familiar, taking this as the path to realize shamatha, direct your attention to one out of six domains of experience. Turning away from the five sensory domains, this is clearly not open presence. And directing your attention as single-pointedly as possible to the one non-physical domain, and that is, of course, the domain of the mind. Attend to that space of the mind and whatever arises within it. So just like looking at someone's face and recognizing, yes, that's Cassia's face, that's Mike's face, and it's a valid recognition in a similar fashion, look at the face of your own mind, and observe whatever arises within that domain, moment by moment, clearly distinguishing between the stillness of your own awareness, as you sit upon your own throne, awareness holding its own ground, remaining in its own place, and illuminating the space of the mind and all the movements therein. in a falcon, kiting into the wind, but remaining stationary with respect to the ground. Face into the wind of the flow of thoughts, memories, and so on. And sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. Briefly turn to the first line of the passionate investigation. In terms of the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. Is there anything that is stable, unchanging? carefully examined, are any of these impulses or appearances in the mind, by nature, veritable sources of suffering or of happiness, intrinsically? And anything whatsoever can appear to us as mine if we grasp onto it as mine. My country, my planet, my friend, etc. But it's mine only because we grasp it as such. Is that true for the space of the mind and the contents? Is there anything here that by nature belongs to you that is really yours by its own intrinsic nature? Or does it appear to be yours only because you grasp onto and identify with it? Now turn your attention to your mind, which we so deeply and habitually reify, grasp onto as real. We see these many things, these many actions or functions that we attribute to the mind as in the Ratna Sutra. The mind does this, the mind does that. The mind is an agent. mind that has these many functions, these many qualities. And now examine closely. Does such a mind really exist at all? Or is it merely fabricated by conceptual projections, superpositions, which are then grasped onto its rill from their own side? Turn your attention once again to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. But see now, is there anything here that really is the mind? Is it anywhere to be found? If the mind really exists, it can't be in the past or the future. It must be now. So what in this present moment can you identify as really being my mind? Has it not already vanished by the time you bring out the label? If the mind is indeed findable, if it's observable, identifiable, you're looking in the right place. It must be here. If it's not here, where else could it possibly be? And if it's not here, then it's nowhere. Is there anything here really, as we attend to what we call the impure mind, is there anything here that we can say from its own side, by its own nature, is pure or impure? Or are these merely conceptual projections on something that's not there at all? We look for the mind and we ask, is it permanent or impermanent? Is there anything there by its own nature that is either permanent or impermanent? Or are these two simply conceptual projections that we superimpose upon space We ask of the mind, is it by nature suffering, dukkha, or sukha, happiness? Do we find anything there of which either statement is true? Or is it empty of both? Neither one to be found. Finally, when we look for the mind itself, can we say of it that it is either a self or not a self, that it has an owner or has no owner? Or are these two simply conceptual constructs? Projected into empty space. that which is nowhere to be found and has no attributes of any kind is empty. So rest in the awareness, the knowing of the emptiness, the unfindability of your own mind. So a very, very brief reference to something I elaborated on quite extensively yesterday, and that is this yoga of single-pointedness, which for which the small stage spans the entire Mahayana path of accumulation. The medium stage covers the first two phases of the path of preparation, namely warmth and pinnacle. And then the great stage the Yoga of Single-Pointedness covers the final two stages of patience and supreme dharma. And I was just kind of curious. I checked this afternoon. I think I might have misspoken at one sentence yesterday. And that is this, where just kind of rather casually, the author, and this is all over the place, rather casually says, and at this, at this point, then a range of paranormal abilities and extrasensory perceptions arise. right? Um, without, without saying, and this is how you get them, I actually know one of the finest researchers in this field, a man named Russell Targ. He's very, very good. He's a physicist. used to be used to be where um, Will Will used to work. There you are, right in front of me, uh, the Stanford Research Institute. He used to uh, be involved there and got millions of dollars of grants from the CIA, the Defense Department, uh, to do research on exactly this: remote viewing, precognition, and uh, and then he found, you know. It, it was very good research, I think, and wrote a number of books. But then the question comes, okay, well, why do some people have it and some people don't? Because they were basically calling people off the street. One woman they called in simply as a subject to compare to the people who had been well-trained. And the woman called in as a subject was off the charts better than anybody they trained. You know, and they had no idea. It was like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Would you like to come in? And, oh, great. You know, you're fantastic. Um, but, I mean, as a scientist, or anybody is just trying to make sense of this, then what gives rise to that? With Buddhagosa, then we have this very detailed whole series of exercises, very arduous exercises in the jhanas that, frankly, to my mind, make, make conceptual sense. Then one might one ask, well, okay, does it work or not? Uh, but there is no such recipe. There's no such sequence of disciplines. This is how you do it. This is exactly how you do it. It's just flat out go for the union of shamatha vipassana, which you begin to get there in the small stage. You're applying your shamatha and immediately putting it to vipassana, but then you'll, you might recall in that medium stage, when you're not on the cushion, when you're not in formal meditative equipoise, then the tendencies of reification come right back in. It's almost like you're lucid when you're on your cushion, but as soon as you're off the cushion, you're not lucid. Or as if you're sober when you're on the cushion, and then you just, as soon as you get off, you, you're drunk. You know? Like you fall off the wagon, so, so to speak. And so he, he remember, he says that. And then as you're moving along the stages, small, medium, great stages of the Mahayana path of accumulation, through this, you're moving through the small stage of the yoga of single pointedness, then you're getting more and more consistent. So that, that is, you're getting more clearly, more definitively, decisively, when you're on the cushion in meditative equipoise, but then it's starting to flow over more and more into the post meditative state. So t- t- by the time you get to the middling state, this is going to be very short, so no worry, the middling state or the medium state of this yoga of single-pointedness, now you're in the, state, the the path of preparation. Not bad. Path of preparation, and you might recall, for those of you who studied this, that the culminating phase of the path of accumulation is characterized by what are called kambaji, the four legs, the four foundations of miraculous activity. Zuntu, or cities. So you're developing those four legs, but right through this process of the union of Samadhi Vipassana, as it deepens, 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 and gets clarified, or how do you say, you're removing the veils of conceptualization. So that by the time you get there to the, the path of preparation, the medium stage of the yoga of single-pointedness, this is where these cities, the, the paranormal abilities, or cities, and the extrasensory perceptions are just arising spontaneously. So it's quite, quite interesting. But it kind of makes sense then that if the realization is deep enough that it's there, you're dwelling in this space-like awareness, the space-like awareness of of emptiness and luminosity on the cushion, but then even when you're off the cushion, you still see things as empty appearances, empty appearances on the cushion and off the cushion. It's getting more homogenous even though you really do have a clear distinction. This is meditative equipoise, more space-like, and this is post-meditative. This is more illusion-like, it's getting stronger and stronger, which means you're not falling back into the, or- the ordinary, the old patterns of reification. It's simply by that that the paranormal abilities and existential perception arise spontaneously. So that's kind of cool, because for those of us who are very intent on liberation and awakening, uh, frankly, I wouldn't do it. Would I take some time out, You know, achieve Shaman, achieve Vipassana, what have you, and say, okay, now let's take time out, never mind the, 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 main, the main track, the main freeway, let's go off and get some paranormal abilities. I wouldn't do it. Life is too short. I don't know if I'm going to even die. I don't want to say, "Ah, oh, shoot, I'm dying today." I, why didn't you tell me? You know, so I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't spend the time. What do you do? You go join a join the circus. <laughs> you know, look at me. Look at me. I can do that without being David Copperfield, without having a million dollars of technology. Look at me. You know, it's not worth it. Not worth the investment. But if it's coming out purely as a derivative, a natural. Emergent phenomena coming right out of absolute mainstream, union of samadhi well, then that's good. Then no time wasted, you know? no time going off to s- things of secondary importance. Olaso. Oh, so now, a question from Birgit. Could you explain the difference between the space of the mind when there is stillness and awareness of awareness? Yes, I can. Whether the words will deliver the goods, that's another question. When you're attending the space of the mind, you're still looking at something. Okay, Still looking at something. Your attention has a vector. It has a direction. Just like, again, only as an analogy, as I'm gazing over at Birgit, it has a direction. But I can also gaze at the space in between where Birgit appears over yonder, about five meters away, and where I sense I'm looking from. I can look at that space. And I'm looking at something. I can see it's transparent. I can see it's clear and so forth. See, it has qualities. right? And so in a similar fashion, when you're attending to the space of the mind, you're looking at something. Okay? And it does have qualities. Is it flat or is it three-dimensional? Is it black? Is it transparent? And so forth. So that's the, the, the mind when it's in stillness, when you're not seeing any activities, any javana of the mind, that's what's left over. Now this is very close, and I like to do the sequence of doing the different phases of settling, of settling the mind its natural state. And here's the sequence. Just a reminder because you're taking off soon. A nice sequence. First focus on that which is easiest to attend to. Images, that's in my experience, just images. Little uh, snapshots, slides, little video clips, kind of easy to watch. And you can also generate them so easily. And then, for some people as easy, some people more difficult, whatever, then discursive thoughts, the chit chat, the mental conversation. And these are appearances arising objectively. Right? And then start attending more to the subjective impulses, happiness, fear, anxiety restlessness, and so forth, and so attending to those. And then attend to the intervals between thoughts, the space of the mind. And really look at that closely. And once you can really have a sense, yes, I am attending to the space of the mind. I'm not just sitting here looking at nothing. I'm not spacing out. I'm not knowing nothing. I'm knowing something. And what I'm knowing is the space of the mind. Good. Now withdraw your awareness from that. And then just go into a place of no appearances, nothing appearing to your awareness, just an immediate, unmediated, that is, there's no buffer zone, unmediated knowing of, I'll put in the personal pronoun, I'm aware. But you don't need the personal pronoun. Awareness is happening. And resting in that, in which case, there's no directionality. You're not looking at anything. You're staying home and knowing staying home. What appears? What appears is simply the knowing of being aware, and nothing more than that. Now, obviously, there will be other appearances, but you don't deliberately give attention to them. Sounds, colors, tactile sensations, thoughts, and so forth. That's going to appear. They'll continue appearing for a long time, but you don't deliberately give attention. In both cases, space of the mind and awareness of awareness, nothing physical, correct? Vacuity? I wouldn't say vacuity, no. The awareness when you're just being aware of awareness, it's it's. The word vacuous doesn't apply. Vacuous implies a space, but this is not a space. It's a, just a sheer. It's like knowing chocolate. It's just a taste. When you when you're tasting chocolate, you don't think what's the space of chocolate. You just say yep, that's it. That's it. Now of course there is a taste you're attending to, but likewise there's a taste. This word is used a lot. Roh. Rochik, the one taste of samsara nirvana and so forth. They use the word taste a lot. right? So what's the taste of your own awareness? Get it right now. I mean, it's being dished up. Voila, here's your awareness. What's the taste? And There it is. It's not vacuous. Not vacuous. Transparent? No. That's the space of the mind. Spaciousness? No. That's the space of the mind. What's the difference? One is vacuous, transparent, and spacious. That's the space of the mind. What's experiencing the space of the mind? Awareness. So withdraw your attention from that space that you're aware of and just come home. Stay there and know that. In the attention revolution, you mentioned the amount of time you practice to get to to a certain stage. Is it the same amount of time which is needed to maintain a stage? No. I mean, it might conceivably be. I mean, you might be conceivably the same height as a person, five people to your right. But it's mere coincidence. So there's no telling. And also, it's good to be aware that when one is really developing along the path of shamatha, it's almost certain that you'll get these pre-tastes, like seeing a preview of a movie that's not coming out for another month, or maybe six months, or a year, if it's supposed to be a blockbuster. So you'll have spikes if you're on stage two, for example you may have spikes of stage three or even stage four. The stage four, you remember, oh, that was a really good session. And then it wasn't. <laughs> uh, it's stage one. You know. and, then you, and then you come back to your median. Okay, what's normal? Not a crummy session, not a really good session. Okay, that's where you are. But you'll probably have some bad sessions on occasion, weather, indigestion, whatever it is, emotional turbulence, eruptions of the mind will have a sense of throwing you back. But then when you're settling in, relaxation, stability, vividness, then you'll have a spike up. One stage, maybe even two stages up. Oh, that's what it can be like. And then just gradually you find, oh, it happened twice this week. It happened six times this week. Oh, it didn't happen three times this week because I was normally there. Okay, that's how it moves. Choppy, choppy, choppy. But then once you've achieved it, how long will it take to kind of stabilize there? That varies so much, I can't say. It depends on one individual to another. How gifted, I mean, how long does it take? When I was learning piano, I'll be really short because I know I ramble on, but when I was first learning piano, I had a target. I had something I really wanted to achieve. Uh, And I wanted to be able to play, to my satisfaction that I would find it beautiful, the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. It's not that hard, but it's it's exquisitely beautiful. And I thought, if I can play that, then then all that time practicing will be worthwhile if I can sit down and play that. And I really wanted to, and eventually I could. I couldn't play it like Artur Rubinstein, never will, but I could play it so well enough that that's really beautiful. You know. And so it's like that. So, but then once you've learned how to play it, can you stabilize it? Well, yeah, keep, keep it current, keep it current. And then you won't just play it well once in a while, you play it regularly. But then, having said that, I would say I have a, a really moderate gift for music. Not bad, but not exceptional. Like, I don't think I'd ever make a living unless I wanted to live as a pauper. But other people, being very gifted, they could, they could get there quickly and then stabilize quickly. Then it's just a matter of, okay, where's your gift? Okay. So one, once shamat has met you, do you... Do you, intensive practice to main, do you practice intensively to maintain it? Do you easily lose it or, if, or, or not? Well, for that one, and, if you're, and I assume you're re- referring to the actual achievement of shamatha, access to the first jhana, then rather than calling on me, little nobody, I will cite as Honnitz Dalai Lama. He said, if you've achieved shamatha, there's no reason you should lose it in this lifetime unless you're just an idiot. And most people are not. <laughs> you know, most people are not. And the thing is, you've, you've gotten something of great value. You know it's a value. It's not because you believe in Buddhism or you have a great you know, reverence for some lama. If you've achieved shamati, you know, whoa, I wouldn't sell this for all the money in the bank. I wouldn't sell this for anything. This is more precious than anything I've ever found anywhere at any time. So it's just common sense. Now, in terms of your lifestyle, activities, and so forth, don't do anything that might imperil your maintaining this. Do whatever's needed. Like Gen Lam Rimba, if necessary, live under a rock on five kilos or 10 kilos of, of brown flour every month. Good call, rather than going out and getting a job and then losing your shamatha. Right? So uh, what, he's, what he's saying here is that once one's achieved shamata, then it's quite durable. You should be able, with, you know, without having to be in strict retreat all the time, that's also the other extreme. Don't get drunk, don't have brain damage, don't ride motorcycles, at least without a helmet. Don't do that. Probably give up the motorcycle. I know it's tough. Where's Jerry? I know it's tough. So in any case, protect it. But you need to be in strict retreat the rest of your life? No. Something in between. Be sensible. Oh, yeah. And I agree with you. Six is so much I is a wonderful text. Uh, it is so rich. And we've just had one little snippet, maybe 5%, maybe 3% of the whole text. It really needs to be translated all over again. Because the earlier one, and, and I, I say this with no criticism. I mean, I'm just scholar to respect a respected scholar. The people translated did it 80 years ago, and they translated chitta as thought. And this has become something like the, the contemplation of thought. Not a very good translation, you know, but then hard when you're 80 years ago. Who are you going to consult? So if my translation is better, well, we know exactly where to look. It's not because I'm smarter or a better translator, really, than those people 80 years ago. I just had these wonderful lamas. So that's it. But um, yeah, I hope, I mean, Vesna and I, my wife and I, were hoping to do it ourselves, but she is a professor. She's so busy. And then I just keep on talking, you know. <laughs> we haven't gotten it to it yet, but I'm happy. It was really my privilege to be able to translate that section. Yak 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 yak. Hola, so. So a question from Alonso. When practicing awareness of awareness, and we begin the attention in brought in on our awareness, I've heard we should focus on the space in front of us. Does this literally mean the space in front of us? Do our eyes need to be focused when we do this? Very good question. And here's here the place to look if you'd like to see where I'm coming from, that I'm not making this up as I go. Uh, the place, it's really very clear, it's in the, um, the, the final section of the section on quiescence, which is the translation I've used for shamatha, in natural liberation. So he starts, from, he starts at a very easy pace of looking at a stone A flower or a stick, really easy. Okay, can you focus on it? Yes. Okay, now something difficult. Oh, so he takes you step by step to more challenging one until the culminating one is awareness of awareness, or what he calls shamatha without a sign. And then when he gets to that one, he said, "Okay, now just practice this until you achieve shamatha, and don't be introduced to rikma until you have." (laughs) Nobody listens to that anymore, do they? But that was Padmasambhava. So in any case, when he's introducing the shamatha without a sign. What he says is, is now rest your awareness evenly in space. Evenly means, like, okay, right now, I'll, I'll turn in your direction, but I'm going to leave my awareness evenly in space, and I'll try to, again, I can't show it, but I'll do my best to show it. I'm not really looking at anything. I mean, my ha- eyes have to be focused somewhere, but I'm not really looking at, at uh, Martin's knee. I'm just, it's e- just even. So, but now, now you know, as soon as I'm look, you know I'm looking at you, right? So now it's no longer even because you're in focus, but, but um, you know, Gabby's not. And even though she's right next to you, she's still, she's still out of focus. So that's uneven. So as soon as you're focusing here and not there, that's uneven. So the idea here is to rest your gaze there. Have it even. But then he says in the very next sentences, he said, and now don't meditate on anything. Don't take anything as an object. Just just sit there. Just be there. Just be present without directing it anywhere, not even inside, not outside, not here, left, right, up, down, nowhere. Just be present. So it's really kind of like rebooting because our our normal way of using a mind is, okay, what are you thinking about? What are you observing? What are you remembering, imagining? So what's your target? What's your target? Or are you being aware of awareness? Okay, my target's staying at home, and it's not even there yet. It's kind of rebooting. So you're not attending to anything. At the same time, you're not just going belly up, like, you know, spaced out. Totally present, but without any particular directionality. And then once you've done that, just resting there without an object. Okay? Now what? Are you aware of anything? Yeah, I'm aware of being aware. Okay, good, I want to focus on that. Okay? And then let your eyes be as relaxed as possible and really do your best not to focus on anything. And if that's difficult uh, doing this in a well-lit, well-lit room or even a softly-lit room like this one, then do it in the dark for a while until you just get the, you get the hang of it. Um, and then also to everybody, don't set your expectations too high. Don't set the bar too high. Feeling if I'm doing this right, then suddenly maybe I should all appearances should vanish or I should experience something really bright or I, I should, 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 should. Forget all the shoulds. And that is if you're just resting there, and you are knowing, being aware. And you're not deliberately giving attention to anything else. And you're not carried away by thoughts. If you're doing, if you, and it's not doing. If you are being aware of being aware. And that's where all your interest is going. Then be satisfied. This was something really strongly impressed upon me. by Gen Lam Rinpo, When he taught me this 24 years ago. He said, you won't, you won't, you won't be satisfied. You'll think, I must be doing it incorrectly. I should be be doing this better. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What you need to do is shut up. (laughs) Give it a rest. You're not supposed to do anything. That's the nature of this practice. You know, just cool it with your Protestant ethic. There's nothing to accomplish here. Nothing to make. Nothing to construct. Nothing to achieve. Just stay home, shut up, and don't fall asleep. And do be aware of being aware. that it's two Bs. It's not being so you can do. It's being, just being. And then be patient. And allow. Something is going to happen all by itself. And that is there will naturally arise, through perseverance, a clearer and clearer sense of the very nature of consciousness itself. The reference of this term, consciousness or awareness, is cognizant. And what does that mean? Now, what's the taste? Anybody can say it. Anybody can think about it. Anybody with two hands can clap their hands and start debating about it. But what's the taste of cognizance? What's it like? And not just knowing that, like knowing Danny's beard. Okay, that I know. Yeah, but what's knowing, just knowing, just coming home and still knowing, but knowing what? Knowing. And what's that, what does that taste like? Knowing, knowing. And then it said that consciousness is luminous. What does that mean? Don't think bright. Don't think color. Don't think shiny, don't think squinting. Not that. Think if you can have to think something, think wide awake. Not dull, not dark. Bright. Just like we say um, Miles actually is. So Miles put your fingers near. He's very bright. <laughs> but okay, that's enough. But you, you notice no light rays are emanating from him. <laughs> when you look at him, he doesn't kind of glow in the dark. You know? But still, he's bright. And you know, what you, you know what I mean by that, right? You know. Okay. Hola, so. So, this one, I think I've learned the handwriting by now. Quite distinctive. It's very neat. Therefore, it has to be a woman. Men almost never have neat handwriting. Once in a while, I suppose. Any advice on how to relate to others experiencing the wrath of Samsara, and they're getting beaten up, I presume, without seeming insensitive? With our knowledge of mental afflictions, impermanence, emptiness, etc., that is, I can't tell a friend to stop grasping and having attachment to get over a stolen car or heartbreak. Oh yes, you can. Sure, you can. You can. Oh, you're not a Buddhist? Oh, well, we Buddhists don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> but I, I, I pity you. I mean, you know, that might not work. well. No, I think you're right. You better not, Unless you want to get slugged. How do you like that? So it's quite true. Uh, do we sympathize by saying, that's awful? Because now I know there's nothing inherently awful. <laughs> so should we humor them, you know? Oh, you poor thing. Yes, do have attachment. Or give no, and, and tell them it has, when you, when you know that it's not inherently awful and it has no owner, the car is just a car, that would go over really well with <laughs> me. I've lost my car, it's just a car, it has no owner. I know it has no owner, it's not me anymore. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> it used to have an owner and now it doesn't, at least not when I know, because I don't know where the thief is. That can give rise to an interesting debate. It's just a label and a conceptualization. Oh, yeah, other people would love that. <laughs> a projection on the situation. Similarly, knowing that, that the new car is not a true source of happiness. How can I genuinely rejoice with a friend? Yeah, so, so when your friend buys a new car and says, come and look at my car, isn't it cool? I mean, I, there was a friend, of, I don't know, him, didn't know him well, never got to know him well, but uh, his pride and joy, is a German fellow, very nice fellow, very good-hearted, very nice fellow, good good guy. And his pride and joy was his $300,000 or two, 200,000 mark or euro uh, Porsche. He didn't own a house so that he could own this car, literally. He didn't own a house so that he could own this car. And he took me for the r- a ride in a car. you know, And it has like 11, 11 airbags in all directions. <laughs> And as we're driving along, he told me with you know real professional pride. It was really sweet. I mean, I have really nothing to criticize here. Here's a man who just really loved his car. And we're driving along on the Autobahn in Germany. And he tells me, in this car, I can drive into a brick wall at 60 miles an hour, and we can walk away. And I said, let's not do that. <laughs> Don't prove it. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> so... This is where the, the compassion of all the Buddhas come in, because as, as you are for the per- person who's just getting bliss out with their new car, so we're all the Buddhas for us. You know, It's all a matter of just how awake are we. Um, but empathy, this, it's a very good point. And that is, if this is an innocence, I mean, is there attachment? Of course there's attachment. But is anything malevolent? Is this, uh, is this unwholesome behavior, non-ethical behavior? To enjoy having a car, driving it safely, taking good care of it, and really loving having that car. Is that unethical? No. Is it a mental affliction? Yes. Sure, there's attachment there. Of course there is. But then when I'm sitting in the passenger seat, can I say, and I say, but thank goodness, I don't have any attachment. No, I do. I have attachment to my own car. <laughs> you know, it's, an older, it's an older vintage model. <laughs> Some people when that actually say it's an antique, but well-preserved. <laughs> so this is empathy. When you see it's nothing unwholesome, uh, if it's something unwholesome, a person enjoys inflicting harm. And I saw a woman interviewed not long ago. She won a um, she won the gold medal in, in boxing, in women's boxing. And she was interviewed to say, what drew you to boxing? And <laughs> I quote her, well, I just like to hit people. <laughs> 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 and when you won the world championship, how did you feel? I saw the other woman cry. I really like that. (laughs) I can't really enjoy I can't really empathetic you know, empathetically rejoice in that. She seemed actually quite a nice person. But I'm glad she's not angry at me. (laughs) So as long as it's not unethical to take delight in others' joys and and then to apply skillful means. That's really what it is. And we come right back to the earlier theme, and that is all right, teaching of an emptiness almost will be, you'll sound like an idiot if you talk about that. So, unless you really want to sound like an idiot, probably better not to. You know. So then your skill, skillful means, something or 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 not. Bear in mind that we're not evangelists. That as soon as we see somebody enjoying a Porsche or enjoying the new car or dismayed because their car is stolen, we don't have an obligation. Okay, now how can I teach you Buddhism? You may not want it, but open up, and I'm going to put it right (laughs) down your throat. (laughs) And if you spit it up, I'm going to keep on rhyming it down until you swallow. You know, Buddha's not like that. So we don't really have to teach. The best thing we can do is really live the Dharma, do our best to live the Dharma. And then if people see something there, in the way we're present, the way we're acting, that they they actually ask. If they find that, oh, you seem to maintain a lot of emotional equilibrium, I value that. You seem to be very mindful, I value that. You seem to be very efficient in what you do. I value that. You seem to be very creative. I value that. Is there anything you're doing that's um, you know, like that? So if that, and then if a question arises, and then you can see, well, yeah, um, sure. I do think there's some cause and effect. I've been doing this kind of practice, and this has been very helpful in this regard. They might very well ask, well, oh, what's the nature of the practice? You know? And then that opens up something. So I think that's the way to go. In the meantime, let's be a kind, as the Dalai Lama says, kindness is my religion. Having a good heart is my religion. Good. Uh, I'm going to go to somebody with different handwriting. They're all very good questions, by the way, sir. And so, question from Jim. Jim keeps moving around. He's a free radical here. There we are. (laughs) Regarding the four measurables, I'm finding that it requires a lot of effort to keep the visualization stable and vivid, and simultaneously keeping the aspiration in mind. If I relax, things, things seem vague. And Sometimes I just have the visualization with no aspiration. What does, what does PTO stand for? Oh oh oh, ha oh, please turn it on. Gotcha, gotcha. And turn over me like this <laughs> <laughs> or like. <laughs> okay. Goofing around. be serious. Aside from <laughs> simply switching to shama to calm down afterward, is there anything I can do to make it more less effortful? Yeah, it's a very good question, very practical and so that is, uh, there are many reflections on other practices here as well. There's the, where's the juice? It's a good question. Where's the juice? When you're practicing cultivating loving kindness or great compassion, whatever it is, in that whole domain of the four measurables and the four greats. Where's the juice? What's the essence of it? And in terms of the four measurables, the juice is, for three out of four, it's in the aspiration. It's, that's where the juice is. It's in the aspiration. Or if it's the great compassion, great loving kindness, the juice is in the resolve, the commitment. It's almost like, and and this does come up, like calling all the Buddhas and all the sentient beings as your witness. Hey, everybody, I'm about to make a promise. Ooh, everybody hug. Everybody know what? And then you make your promise. It's a promise of great compassion, of a resolve, which better come from a very deep place. Otherwise, it really does sound very silly. Uh, but there it is, and of course, empathetic joy, it's not in, in the Theravada, the Pali Canon, it's, res- it's not a resolve, it's not an aspiration, it is simply taking delight, rejoicing, being satisfied, being content, be appreciating, valuing. And so, so there it is. So as soon as we know what the essence is, then we see that everything else is simply serving as a cooperative condition to bring that ab- out about and sustain it. So the visualization practices, bringing people to mind, arousing this, imagination here, thinking there, conceptualization there, all this whole process of discursive meditation, all that's designed to get to the juice. right? So, so that kind of implicitly then answers the question. And that is, I know, the visualization, again, some people are more gifted than others in visualization, but that does not mean, what I'm about to say very important, some people more gifted, some people less gifted in visualization. Does this mean that people more gifted in visualization are going to be more loving, more compassionate, more empathetic. No, I don't think there's any special correlation at all. I don't think so. Which is to say then that one may cultivate very deep, very authentic, absolutely heartfelt sense of affection, of caring, of loving kindness, of compassion, empathetic delight in other successes, their virtues and so forth, even if you can't visualize worth beings. There's just no reason that you couldn't have the juice without being expert in visualization. Right? Now, could it be helpful to be able to maintain a continuity so you're not just having a little flash of one of those? That would be very useful, because that's going to make it go deeper. And the whole point here is that we're moving from something that, where we feel, OK, before the session, there wasn't that much of an aspiration, because I was just doing other things. I was drinking some water and so forth. But then I sit down, and then I arouse a certain aspiration. I say loving, kindness, or compassion. So then we, we do a certain practice, and then it's aroused, right? So we call that, to say it's contrived is, is misleading, it's unkind. But it's something that is brought forth with effort. Because we're practicing, right? But then the idea there, the whole point here, and we see this explicitly in Chantadeva or in, in the bodhicitta, is that as we keep on coming back to it and cultivating it, like cultivating a garden, cultivating it, generating it, bringing it forth, then as it gets more and more familiar, then we find that even when we're not cultivating it, it may be catalyzed. It still needs a cooperative condition, but it may be a catalyzed and that it arises spontaneously. So, for example, when you witness someone who's suffering, you don't think, oh, there's somebody suffering. Okay, I want to pause here. Uh, um, okay, I'm going to generate compassion. You know, You don't need to. You simply attend to. What you're attending to becomes reality. And what the reality that is really coming upon you is the reality of somebody else suffering. And what are you going to do when you're really aware of somebody suffering? You're going to want to be free of it. As Deva says, I mean, there's so many verses just below the mind. They just blow the mind. But how can I not wish for the person to be free of suffering? Why? Because it's suffering. That's the end of the debate. That's the end of discussion. It has no owner. And that's just true. So all we need to do is attend closely, and compassion arises. All we need to attend to is attend closely. So we see the lovable qualities in others. We see them as lovable, see them as dear, see them as someone who is of our same family. And then loving kindness arises. So all of the discursive meditations, the visualizations, the liturgies and so forth, all of that are simply to arouse impulses that are already there. No one is devoid of loving, kindness, compassion, and so forth. No one. No sentient being is devoid. of it. They're in the very nature of awareness itself. So we engage in the conceptual, discursive meditations to arouse them. And then, as they're aroused, then we see if we can just simply rest in them, let them flow, let them become more spontaneous, let them build their own momentum so that aspiration is there. Like a person who is hungry, doesn't need to keep on reciting a liturgy. May I find food and the causes of food. May I find food and the causes of food. Just If you're really hungry, the, the desire is just always there. You know. And there it is. And so likewise, or if you're thirsty, or what have you, uh, the aspiration is there. So it was very nicely phrased by a friend of mine. And that is, after you've cultivated, and you come off the cushion, and you're just walking off quite innocently, just, OK, it's dinner time. I'm off to get a meal. So you're not then at that time thinking, may all sentient beings find happiness, the cause of happiness. You're just walking from here to there, you know. But then you're poised. You're poised because of your cultivation. You're poised for loving kindness. You're poised for compassion. You're poised for empathetic joy. They're just ready to arise, and all they need is a little catalyst, and then out they are. They come out. So when bodhicitta arises like that. It's said in the classic Mahayana literature, when kind of almost anything can catalyze, activate, arouse, but effortlessly in your dream state, in the waking state, during times of felicity, during times of adversity, whatever's happening, when almost anything can turn it on. Okay, Good. Then you're a bodhisattva. Because now you don't need to generate it. It's just the natural response to pretty much everything. Okay? Good. Enjoy your dinner.